You're listening to 50 Plus a Tip, the show for strippers, ethical sluts, and other open-minded whores. On the prairies of the Midwest, frozen to the shores of Lake Superior, a stripper rose out of the debris of a broken marriage. The founder of Haymarket Pole, a black, multi-ethnic, non-binary femme from a small town, Kat Hollis found refuge in the anonymity of adult entertainment. Now wielding almost a decade's worth of experience while advocating for and building a reputation within the adult entertainment industry, it is this next part of the journey which is most exciting. An accomplished artist and stripper, Kat has been everything from a sailboat deckhand to a middle school teacher to a gallery curator and a published playwright to a big booty hoe and workers' rights advocate. You guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Kat Hollis is doing amazing things within and for the sex work community, and listening to her speak is super powerful. So you guys are really going to love this. And here you go. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to have you on. The first question being, how did you begin your journey into sex work? Um, I was in an abusive relationship. Uh, and I guess that's not really the, the reason was capitalism because I couldn't pay my bills. I also happened to be circumstantially in an abusive relationship. Um, and a lot of my money was going into that relationship. And so I was working a square job, um, and couldn't make rent that month. Um, so one of my friends who I had known for a really good amount of time, came out to me as a stripper and I had no idea that that was her job. Like looking back, I really should have known, but I was totally a civilian and I had no idea. Um, and she was like, why don't you come up to Minneapolis with me? Um, work one weekend. I bet you'll make at least 500 bucks. Um, which seemed like a huge amount of money to me. Um, and she told me that I would need a wig and a bikini And that was it. She's like, you can wear whatever, like the first day, just wear whatever heels that you have. And I think I wore some like sling back kitten heels that I got at Target. Um, So that really was, stripping was my entrance into sex work. And I think that I started doing more um, extracurricular sex work uh, just as I realized that my, my client base had a lot of money that I could exercise outside the club. So, um, you just mentioned that you got into sex work sort of because of, uh, you know, your, your career was born out of a broken marriage. Um, did you find that you, like, well, how come you decided to stay in sex work, I guess, once you were out of that situation? Um, so it really, because sex work got me out of it. I was, my ex had called me and said I needed to come home. I was working out of town, uh, two to three days a week. And then I would turn around, drive two hours, come back and work the other half of the week. Um, and so he had asked me to come home early, uh, with a bunch of money for him. And I was like driving back to him so scared. And I was like, you know what? I actually realized that I could, I had the money and I didn't have to give it to him. And I could just actually find a place by myself and didn't need him to support myself. Um, and Moving forward from that, just because I'm a medium level educated black woman in the Midwest, it would be really hard for me to find a job with a living wage. Um, you know, this was a, a couple of years ago, so it was, you know, the rent situation was a little bit better, but for the most part, it's really unmanageable to try to work minimum wage jobs, especially in a small town that's a lot of time all that was offered. So my choice was really factory work, sex work or 
like becoming a wife and mother. And those were really my three options in a small town where I was. So, um, I had been a teacher previous to that and it had taken so much out of me and the pay had been so mediocre, um, that I really, I burnt out. I got exhausted after like a year and a half. Um, and so sex work was the first time that I was ever able to provide myself with free time. It was the first time I had ever been able to provide myself with self-care, um, to be able to go to the doctor, um, to be able to get groceries and not think about every single cent that was going out, um, and not living just straight up hand to mouth. Um, so it really wasn't, people talk about survival sex work a lot and I don't know anything other than that because that's just surviving capitalism has been not an optional thing for me. I I don't have a safety net. I don't, and sex work, you know, alienated my relationship with my family. So I don't have a safety net anymore either. Um, so it was really, it was my exit plan at first. And then I had no way really to afford to do anything else. Um, so it was sort of my only option. I think that shocks a lot of people. I get a lot, even as a stripper, when people are like, how can you do this? Like, they're so disrespectful. It's like, I feel more disrespected when I was a server than as a stripper. At least as a stripper, I make my own hours. I'm like properly, adequately paid for the labor I'm doing. And I found in other jobs, I was rarely, if ever, um, appropriately taken care of. 100%. And just to have extra spending money. Definitely. Definitely. You mentioned your family there, and that's something, you know, we also, I think we all get asked a lot, you know, what do your parents think of this? How does your family react? Um, how do you approach that that question then? Um, usually, usually I'll just say I, I have never had a real relationship with my family. Um at least my, my parental units in my family, um, the relationship has never been close. It was never good. Um, and I grew up without a lot of contact with my dad. So usually what I say is like, I've already, I already had practice as a child operating without a parent. So operating without the other parent wasn't a big learning curve for me. (laughs) Um, and I usually tell them to mind their business, um, to be honest with you. Um, Nobody ever asked that when I was a teacher. (laughs) Nobody asked that when I was super broke and working three jobs. No one was like, oh, is your mom, you know, what what does your mom think about you having no time off and overworking yourself? Um, And I've asked that to my mom too, you know, nobody dreams of labor. It's not my dream job, obviously, but it's also is my dream job and that it provides a lot for me. So I usually, um, kind of skirt around the question. I used to tell people I was an orphan, um, just to avoid the conversation. And then I had somebody who was actually an orphan be like, Oh, I'm going to commiserate with you. And I was like, Oh my God, I feel so bad. This was really in bad taste for me to have ever done. Um, and so I took that out of my lexicon. Um, but that was the easiest way to, to really explain to people my relationship was to indicate that there there was no relationship and that was the easiest way to do it. We have talked on the podcast a lot about misconceptions um, that we get as sex workers. Both me and Danica um, definitely stand and, you know, we, we come from a privileged place in sex work. 
So are there misconceptions that we might have even about uh, survival sex work? I, I don't know because I don't know what the other, I don't know what your sex work looks like. I have heard from somebody that they always wanted to be a stripper, that it was a glamorous lifestyle that they wanted to get into. That sounds crazy to me. (laughs) Um, Not to say that strippers aren't glamorous and aren't, you know, all those things to look up to, but I've never been able to choose my job even outside of sex work. I've never been able to choose my apartment outside of sex work. When my partner and I go to look at places, uh, they're white. I'm obviously brown. And if I go along, we don't get a call back. If he goes by himself, we immediately get a call back. Um, and that's with less income, right, on the books. That is only them applying. So I think the same falls under for sex work. A lot of the gigs that I went for, I wasn't eligible for because I wasn't fitting the look. So every single step of the way has been survival. I've never had a choice in where I got to work. I've never had a choice in where I got to live. Um, So I don't know what the other side looks like. So I I don't know if I have a good answer to that. Mm -hmm. That's a fair answer for sure. So you're currently in Portland, correct? Yeah. And Portland famously has the highest number of strip clubs per capita. So about 47 of them. And we've also heard that some of them have themes. How many of the clubs? Yeah. (laughs) That's something that we do not have here, Um, especially in Vancouver. I've never heard of a strip club having a theme. What have been some of your favorite club themes that you worked at? So um, the term that real OGs use is novelty clubs. Um, because they're not real strip clubs. They're borderline burlesque clubs where white women go to make a lot of money with no work. In my personal opinion, not to throw any shade on anybody who works at those clubs, but they're a joke. Um, in my personal opinion. Uh, so the clubs that I've worked at, one of them did have a theme and it actually was one of the more G clubs that I worked at. It was safari and it had like uh, African tiki theme. I actually have, it got shut down and torn down, um, to that's a whole long story, but it got shut down and, and torn down. And I have behind me, this is the sign from the bouncer station with all of the club rules on it. But I also have one of the tiki's. There was a tiki on stage, like a, um, a big tall thing. And it's probably about eight feet tall, but every girl who ever went on that stage touched it because it was what you hung the spray bottles on, um, to sanitize the pole. And so I think it has really good karma on it. Um, cause it's been touched by every beautiful ass that's ever, um, walked out on that stage. So that's one, um, the theme that I hear a lot in this town, which is actually like a racist dog whistle is rock and roll club. Um, I've been told that I don't look like I belong on the back of a Harley. So they're not looking for me. Um, that's a really common response. I don't know what that is supposed to mean, but it basically means I'm not white. Um, and so a lot of the clubs in town have a skinny white women theme, I would say is the biggest theme at any of those clubs. Um, and it's a novelty. Yeah. Uh, Uh, I've also worked at I worked at Guilty Pleasures, whose theme is actually hiring inclusive dancers. Um, They are owned by a previous, somebody who used to work in the industry, 
um, who's a woman. Um, they are lovely. I, I love Julie so much and I would recommend that club, um, for anybody who's looking for a good place to start off at. Um, they hired the most inclusive lineup that I've ever seen. I also worked at Sassy's where I was one of three Brown dancers who worked at, at that club. And, um, now to my knowledge, there are no Brown dancers at that club. Um, we all retired around the same time, um, from that club. Uh, and where else have I worked? Oh, and then club 205, but that doesn't have a theme again. It's a real club. Sorry, you just used a term um, a little while back, a racist dog whistle. Are you able to explain what that means? Yeah, for sure. Um, racist dog whistle. A dog whistle is a whistle that only a dog can hear, right? Um, and so the the term comes from, it is when somebody's saying something that you know is indicating some sort of race. So like, for instance, um, when somebody says, oh, you look exotic, where are you from? that tells me, and maybe I'm the only one who hears it, that tells me that they're asking me what color is my dad, who fucked my mom. Um, they don't have any intention of, of asking me anything about myself or my culture. They're just trying to figure out if a black dick went into a white woman. Um, and so racist dog whistle is something, it's a term, and now we call it a racist bullhorn because you can everybody can hear it a lot of times now. Um, but the term dog whistle is is an indicator for something that lets you know that somebody has prejudice or or moves um with racism affecting their choices interesting yeah i've never heard of that term but i mean breaking it down like that totally makes sense the dog whistle yeah i mean and you could you could have a you could have a dog whistle for like a misogynist also you know what i mean if somebody's like oh you know you look like you're really fit you know, where do you work out? And you're like, this is not, this is not going, this conversation is not about to go someplace cool. Um, and so that, that could be a dog whistle also. It, it could be used for any number of, of types of discrimination. Hmm. You have to add that to my, uh, to my repertoire. Uh, yeah, for sure. So you have the company Hay Market Poll. Can you tell us a bit about that and how did you come to start it? Yeah, um, Haymarket Poll is a nonprofit organization. We have a 501c3 status, so donations are tax deductible. Um, we are an autonomous group of sex workers who are black, indigenous, and or trans um, working towards equitable home and workspaces for dancers of color and trans, or excuse me, sex workers of color and trans sex workers in Oregon. Um, primarily we serve the Portland metro area, but we also, um, have people that we serve that are outside of Portland, but, um, our 501c3 means we can only help people in Oregon. Um, it started in my head a long time ago. I was trying to come up with like a co-op type model for, um, strip clubs and trying to think of, of ways to do that. So I actually got the domain long before, it turned into what it turned into, um, and couldn't find much support or interest for the co-op model. But then when everything shut down, uh, it kind of, there was a, a discussion that started happening between black sex workers who started a group chat, um, to share memes and kind of keep ourselves uplifted. Uh, and that group chat developed into this idea that we needed a support system for 
black and brown sex workers in Portland. Uh, and in the response to George Floyd's murder and um, in the wake of uh, Blackout Tuesday, which was a day that white creators um, were a week even that white creators were supposed to stay silent um, on social media. They posted black squares to try to boost um, black creators. And there was a huge response from people in Portland who people of color in Portland who saw clubs who have never had a brown butt on their stage or maybe two brown butts ever. And they're like light skinned half Puerto Rican girls. Um, no offense to light skinned half Puerto Rican girls. Y'all are great. I love you. Um, but they were posting these black lives matter signs and they're posting blackout squares and asking for donations to black lives matter when they've done nothing for the lives that are currently alive. You know what I mean? They're, they're doing it post-mortem and um, the anger that sort of came out and, and the hurt that came out in the comment section of those posts really sprang into this larger collective action for justice um, in Portland. So uh, I think at, at our highest peak, we had, like 200 or, th or 300 members on an online ser ser uh, server that we all talked and voted on things on. And then as, um, as we got fiscal sponsorship and our 501c3 status, um, it sort of condensed down into this core group of people who are really doing the work now. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome that you're doing so much for the community. You also started the Portland 2020 stripper strike. Uh, can you tell us? Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Can you tell us how you started and what your demands were, or in other words, what you're hoping to achieve and then the results that came of it? So um, our demands were fairly simple, um, in my personal opinion. And the reason I say that is because the majority of our demands are compliance with current state and federal non-discrimination law. These laws are required for any place of business including strip clubs, including on independent contractors. These are things that a place of business is required to have in the state of Oregon. So the joke was that some of these companies said, no, we can't do that. It's too expensive. You guys are asking for something radical when actually they should have already had it 10 months ago, you know, um, according to the law. So our, our demands were a company culture of accountability. So to include, uh, forward-facing policies on how to report sexual assault and discrimination in those workplaces um, and for people to understand how those processes worked and what they could expect from them. Um, we ask that people require staff read the provided literature that we have and attend listening sessions. We held listening sessions um, twice a week for three or four months. Um, and they were just opportunities for sex workers of color to speak openly about their grievances in the industry and really talk about what they, what they felt um, had been harmed to them. We also asked them to consider equal shifts for equal work. So that means, you know, no sucking dick for a Friday shift. You don't get a Friday shift because you're banging the manager. You get it because you've been there for a certain amount of time. And anybody who's been there for the same amount of time, like I was at a club for two years before I got one Saturday a month, whereas a little blonde girl could get every Saturday from the moment that she was hired. And there was no transparency on why that was. Um, we asked that uh, clubs maintain compliance with SB 726, which is an Oregon law that um, basically says not only do you need to 
not have discriminatory practices, you need to have a training policy in place to prevent future discrimination or sexual assault. And then we just had a list of other laws that we asked them to be in compliance with. So it really wasn't a big ask. Uh, We were just asking that people acknowledge that there has been an issue throughout Portland and that we can all do better. I think that's incredible. How was the support from clubs generally good? Did you have some backlash? Uh, How was that? How did you advertise it, I guess, as well? Um, so one of the ways it was advertised was we started taking over the hashtags of the clubs that were problematic. Um, and so there was a hashtag like Uber eats, um, was one of the hashtags that we took over and completely flooded it with stripper strike information and black lives matter information. Um, and we just flooded hashtags online. The other thing that we did was we did, uh, public phone banks. And so we would tell people, here's the phone number for the club. Everybody call the club and ask for their non-discrimination policy, which by law they have to have. Um, and so we would just literally keep calling clubs and asking for the things that they're required to have by law. Um, and I think that it was also the right time. I think that a lot of the advertising was very natural, um, because of the increased awareness of black lives mattering uh, the increased awareness of sex work being real work and being a necessary part of our culture. Um, and so I think it, it, it grew really organically and, and it was springing up across the country as well. There was other, um, places that had similar ideas and had similar movements like Stilettos Inc. Um, in Philadelphia, uh, is very similar. We started at around the same time. We didn't start together. Um, we are now cohorts. We now, you know, um, vibe and interact with each other. But a lot of this was just that the timing was right and it was needed. It was such a necessary thing that needed to happen. And I think it also, you know, white folks had three months to sit with nothing else to do, but look at the information and the media that we gave them. Um, and that was the only way to get people's attention. I don't think anyone would have lifted an eyebrow if they had anything else to do, um, but they didn't. And so we really had a captive audience to sit and say, hey, look at this data, look at the you know statistics, look at who's at risk and ask yourself, what, are, what can we do better to better protect those people? Was the, like, was the support from the clubs genuinely good? Um, so Mary's club is female owned and is family owned. I think it's like the third generation, um, of people who own that club. So that's really cool. They were the first club to sign on. They were super supportive. I really appreciated their support because it really opened the floodgates for other clubs to feel comfortable. Um, there was clubs. I tried to, I go by the motto, look for the helpers. So I try not to give any press to the clubs that were really bad. So I will say that there was a club. I'm not going to say their name because they don't deserve any advertising. Um, there was a club that was very obtuse to it, told us to F off, told a reporter from the Willamette weekly to F off, which was a big mistake because he had given, getting all these phone calls from us, right. And getting all these emails from us. And so when an actual reporter reached out, he thought it was a joke. And so he went off and made a, the big mistake of telling a reporter that he's not going to be in compliance with the law, that he, you know, that we can all eat it, that we can F off, um, all this other stuff. So, you know, 
And he said all press is good press. And I would say within 24 hours of that news story being published, they had folded and bowed toward Mans. That's incredible. Yeah, I love if they all shoot themselves in the foot. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and it happens really quickly. And, and you know, our, our intention is not to have people shoot themselves in the foot. It's to give an opportunity for growth. Because, you know, these people will walk this line as long as we let them. And we want to keep our places of work. We love our clubs. You know what I mean? It's dope that we have so many clubs to choose from. That's not something that I think should change. I think that it's great to have so many different clubs owned by so many different people and that they all have their own sort of atmosphere and theme, as you call it. Um, but it's still important to maintain compliance with the law um, as far as non-discrimination goes, at least. Definitely. Speaking of law, sex work is one thing that is such um, a legal battlefield. And it, it blows my mind um, that we think it's a we, that we've okayed it to allow people to seek services from other humans for things that they bring them pleasure, like massages. Totally okay, totally yeah. legal, consenting adults. But as soon as there is an orgasm involved, it's somehow a huge issue. And oh yeah, you can go boxing. You know what I mean. You can go punch each other in the face with consent, but it's not okay to get off. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very, uh, confusing to me how that's the thing we've chosen to fight over. Um, and I've heard people say before that they, they consider it kind of a, a war on women or a war on female presenting people. And that's why sex work is such an issue legally. Uh, what's your take on that? Why do you think sex work is so polarizing, such a legal issue? Well, a number one, trans sex workers, whether they, whatever they identify as, are the ones who experience the most violence in our community. I think that needs to be very clear um, that they are at the bottom rung as far as protections go. Um, that's a number one. I think that sex work is such a legal battlefield because control over property and possessions has always been part of the patriarchal system. And it has always been part of capitalism to give that ownership to, um, specifically white cis men. Um, and I think as the power moves out of the hands of those white cis men and more autonomy is given to people outside of that particular subset, um, there's a question of, well, then who owns it? You know, um, and, and the real thing is nobody, nobody owns it. You, you know, you have autonomy over your own body and should be allowed to do what you want. Um, and I think that the, the legal battle comes into question because people, and I also think the legal question comes into play because people don't want sex workers to be able to get help, to be able to have rights, to be able to advocate for themselves. They would rather keep it illegal. They would rather keep it under the table so that they can, can continue to, um, subjugate and objectify and, um, victimize sex workers, um, which they couldn't do if the legal system gave us any rights. Um, so I think that, uh, as long, as long as cis white men are the majority of the clientele of sex workers, we are going to have a legal struggle over our own autonomy because white cis men have a really hard time giving up control and giving up the idea of ownership on a community. Yes, they do. I just have a qu another question about the stripper strike, actually. What are some advice or pointers that you would give to people wanting to um, maybe start one in their own community, in their own city? 
Yeah, I think a number one is don't say you're starting a union. You're not starting a union if you're not employees. Um, I would also say uh, to document everything, including how your shifts change. Um, So you should take pictures of your, and this is stuff that you should do even if you're not starting a stripper strike. Take a photo of your contract when you sign it. Make sure that you have documentation of that contract. Keep it in your phone. Um, If you can, take pictures of your stage fees. Whenever you pay any money to the club, take a, literally just a picture of the cash that you're about to hand in and write on one of the dollar bills bouncers, right, on the top of it. That documentation will help you when inevitably you get retaliated against by these clubs um, because they'll come back at you. Um, be prepared for a long fight. It's not easy. Um, I've been blacklisted from a lot of clubs. I've had my life threatened. I've had my kneecap threatened. I've had um, my home and my family threatened. Um, so it's not something to take lightly or to be a fun thing. Uh, it's really dangerous, and you're fucking with people's money. So be careful where you step. Um, tread lightly on the ashes of burned bridges because uh, it's your only way home. Uh, yeah, I would say document as much as you can. Document who you talk to, when you talk to them. Document whether or not your shifts changed. Don't say that you're going on strike. You can't go on strike as independent contractors. Um, my real advice would get in contact would be to get in contact with a lawyer um, in your local area before you start. Um, and the reason for this is you're going to want to know how to and feel free to drop us an email on our website. If you are looking for a lawyer in your area, we can probably hook you up with somebody because we have some connections with, um, chains of lawyers that can contact other places. Um, but yeah, be careful, be strong and look for the helpers. There's always going to be haters. I'd say that's my number one piece of advice. Always look for the helpers because the haters will be innumerable always. But the one way that you can tell you're going in the right direction is running into enemies. So you touched on some, I know in Nicole Byer's um, podcast with you, Why Won't You Date Me? You mentioned that um, some clubs, when they hire um, people of color, they tend to get sort of the, sh- the bad shifts. And you uh, sort of re- reiterated yeah. that as well. Um, for local clubs here, you either get hired um, or you don't. And then once you're hired, you can come in for whatever shift you want. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess we don't see that type of discrimination. So in your opinion, is there another thing that we should be looking out for? Is it the hiring process? How can we make it more accessible to people of color? So a number one, that is because you are actually treated as an independent contractor. Independent contractors don't get scheduled. A lot of the clubs in this town have misrepresented how they treat us tax wise. Sorry, just to interrupt Mm -hmm. there. Um, Riley, when she's talking about not scheduled, that's strictly VIP dancers. Uh, Stage dancers are scheduled here in, in, in especially Vancouver. Yeah. So when you, once you get hired, you can decide if you want to do stage or VIP. VIP come and go as they please. Stage is scheduled. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. I like that model a lot better. Um, come on over. Because I would do VIP all day. Yeah, man. I thought about trying to get Asylum to come up there earlier, but now I might just move there. Um, 
So I think other things to look for would be booking practices. Um, Western beauty standards are really prolific in this industry that the, the ideal beauty standard, the ideal body standard, the floor model, as it's often called, is defined a lot by what we see in our media. Um, and so I think it's really important to, to showcase the beauty of um, a diverse range of different people. So if you have a diverse range of people at your club, make sure that's in your advertising. I'd say that's one way to do it because that will, that is sort of a a good dog whistle. When I see brown faces in advertising, I know I'll be welcome there. Um, And so that's a way that I can tell that I'll be safe at a club. Um, So I would say definitely just boosting and, and helping the people of color that are already there. I think the other thing is just to be aware of, your own implicit bias. There are implicit bias tests that you can take online um, to find out an implicit bias over explicit bias is something that you know about. It is, you know, a prejudice that you have. Like I don't like certain types of cheese, right? I have an explicit bias about that. I know that I don't like cheese. I can tell anybody that I don't like cheese. Um, But an implicit bias is something that you don't necessarily acknowledge and it isn't necessarily in line with your beliefs, right? So even though your stated beliefs say, Hey, I'm anti-racist. Hey, I'm working towards this. Hey, you know, I've done a lot of work, a lot of reading. I'm a good ally. You can still have an implicit bias. Um, so it's important to take tests to find out what your implicit bias is so that you can counteract those implicit biases. Cause I think for the most part, people do want to do good. Um, And so we have an implicit bias, um, preference towards Western or yeah, Western European, Northern European looking bodies and faces. Um, and so trying to address that, that bias in your hiring, I think is really important. So to make sure the person who's booking is aware, um, of how they potentially are are giving bias to certain groups. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in your intro, we mentioned you identify as non-binary. How does your identity fit into the often hyper-feminization of strip clubs? And do you find yourself having to play a part or do you find yourself able to be your authentic self? I think I, I, think I always play a part. Um, I think part of the reason why it's been... Uh, not so hard for me as I am very femme leaning. Um, and that is a lot of what is, is preferred in this industry. Um, but I think that I always play a part because it is not, I'm not getting paid enough to give my authentic self to anybody. Okay. Um, and so there is a piece of me that I, I do set aside and I do keep for myself. And I understand that Roxy honey, the girl who goes on that stage is totally different from the human who is me, who is non-binary. Um, that person is very much a performance. Um, and I think it is difficult for me to put my authentic self forward on stage because I'm not very nice. (laughs) Um, and I, I think that's something that also that, that people of color understand that there is a lot of masking that goes on and a lot of comforting white spaces and white faces. Um, and so there is so much that has to be curated for the audience that you're serving. 
Um, and so because of that, that curated nature, if I tried to extend that, that sort of curation to my own personal life, I would be exhausted. Um, and so I really, um, you know, there is, there's a build your own Barbie who's on stage and, and they're lovely. Um, but they're definitely not who I am all all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of that exhaustion, something we talk about a lot in the podcast is burning out. So just some advice you have for dancers who are getting to that level of burnout and exhaustion. Um, and you mentioned earlier in the podcast, how our careers allow some area for self-care that other careers didn't. So do you have any tips on self-care and grounding that could help someone who's going through burnout? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think one of the best things that you can do is get out into the woods. Um, we live in, or we operate as sex workers in a very nocturnal system. Um, and it can be really, really healthy to get out into the sun, um, for your own circadian rhythm, for your own biorhythms, to get out into nature, take a deep breath, be amongst trees, um, and green spaces are so, so important for our mental health. It's been scientifically proven to reduce stress. Um, and so coming up with hobbies that take you out into green spaces, I hunt for, um, wild edibles, mushrooms and other wild edibles. Um, and that sort of gives me something interesting to talk about with clients also, because guys are super into that sort of stuff. Um, but I think it's also just really helpful to have a practice that gets you out one season of the year, take a, make a plan in advance to take a break. Um, I take two weeks off in the spring every year to go mushroom hunting. Um, and being able to look forward to that time and to plan for that time gives me this like ability to calm myself down. So when I start to feel burnout, I'm like, Oh, it's okay. I actually have this coming. So, um, you know, prepare for that before you actually get there. Uh, yeah, I think those are great tips. Um, I'm definitely someone who loves the outdoors. We are very lucky to live in uh, in Vancouver where you get like the, the beautiful ocean, you get the mountains, you get the trees. Um, so that's definitely something I'm trying to make a point to do myself is getting outdoors more. And I completely agree with the part of we're such like nocturnal creatures with our jobs that sometimes it feels like we're missing out in like the day-to-day things because we're sleeping yeah. through the days. So I completely agree. I think those are great tips. The other thing would be I go sun tanning. I go to the tanning booth during the winter um, because I'm really not getting, especially when you live up north like you guys do, it's so dark. Um, It can be really important to get vitamin D. um, So it's something that really helps a lot too is going to the tanning booth. Yeah, my my, uh, spray tan's not doing the job. (laughs) (laughs) I um, My old roommate had one of those happy lights. That mm. would just like radiate um, mm. vitamin D. I love that. And we would all like ho- hover around, uh, drink our coffees, and like stare at this light. <laughs> <laughs> Give us your. <laughs> um, I just question about this kind of like, totally offside, but I was thinking about it as you were talking. And um, when I guess lecture at the university, I always allow the students to ask questions. And as a person that identifies as Metis, um, people can always try to guess what I am at least five times a shift. What are you? Are you Latina? Are you Colombian? Are you blah, blah, blah? Are you Persian? They speak Farsi to me. I'm like, I have no fucking clue what you're saying, but cool. I had a student ask me once, you know, do you roll with it? Be super sexy if I'm, if I'm Spanish, if I'm Colombian, if I'm, you know, whatever they want me to be. But as soon as I say, oh, I'm Métis, mm-hmm. their face just like, mm-hmm. ugh, like, ew, you're Métis. Um, so one of the students asked, you know, why don't you just say, oh, yeah, sure, I'm Spanish or sure, I'm, I'm you know, Persian. Um, 
And I, I kind of walked away thinking like, how do I feel about that? How do I feel about if I play into that? Is it taking someone else's identity? Is it fetishizing someone else? Um, so I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I definitely allowed people to fill in the blank for me before. Um, because they get so excited when people ask where you're from. Like I said, they're not asking anything about my heritage. They don't want to know where I was born. They don't want to know any of that stuff. They want to know who fucked my mom. Right. Mm -hmm. So it is very much a fetishization thing. Um, and so when they ask where I'm from, there's like a bet that happens in their head that they already know where I'm from. Right. And I've literally had people say, no, you're not like, you've got to be something else. No, you're not. And you know, the thing is like, Hey, why would I lie to you? And then the answer is I would lie to you because you would feel good about being right. Um, and so I definitely have said, you know, people would be like, well, where are you from? And I'd be like, guess. And they'll be like, maybe you're a quarter of this, a fifth that, you know, whatever. And I'm like, you dead on, man. How did you guess? But I do the same thing when people ask how old I am and I say guess and they say 24, I'm like, Oh my God, you're so smart. I'm not 24. My name isn't Roxy. Um, but I do super feel you on not taking someone else's identity and not misrepresenting yourself as that identity. I think that it's, there is an aspect of colorism that comes into play where you are trying to identify with the closest to an acceptable brown person, right? The exemplary minority standard that you're looking for. Um, again, I think the problem is white folks. <laughs> it sucks that brown folks have to make that decision, but the problem is white folks needing to know. Um, I think it's a rude question. Uh, and in that, I think take the idiot's money no matter what, but also, changing the subject is your best bet. I think that's the most ethically the right thing to do <laughs> um, would be, or I love telling people that I'm white <laughs> and just running with that. And they'll argue and I'll be like, nah, man, I am white. But I, I mean, I'm half white. So like, you know, it's actually, it is actually as true as I am black, but they will not accept white. And that is because statistically speaking, people are identified as the, if they are mixed race, they are identified as the minority part. They're identified as the, um, as the part of them that is considered to be less uh, desirable. And this was held up in the United States as late as like 1985. A woman was not allowed to mark white on her passport because she had a great, 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 great grandmother who was black. Um, and so that sort of, racism goes really deep, deep into our communities. And I mean, part of the problem, really a lot of times I'll give the answer. Uh, if your granddaddy had kept better records, I would know. Um, so that's a really good answer is just like, Hey man, you're coming from a huge place of privilege and you really did a good job exterminating my culture. So I don't really know friend. You know, I think that's a really good way to go about it. But yeah, I think you're right. There is, there is an ethical uh, slant to that, that I think can be easily over, overpassed. And it's good that you thought about it. Yeah. I agree with the part where they already have the answer they want you to say. So it is that internal battle of like, I am a fantasy in this world 
And do I just let you have whatever fantasy you want of me? Like you said, my name's fake. My age is fake. Where do we draw that line? So it's something to think about for sure. I thought about it a lot. Um, especially so yeah. shout out to that I, student. I, I do think pe- people who especially have lighter skin need to think about their privilege of being able to, to take on that identity and then put it back away. Mm-hmm. That is a huge privilege that you shouldn't take advantage of. Um, but I think that, you know, if someone who's dark skin wants to say they're from Ghana and they're actually, you know, from Liberia, I don't know. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a whole different story. But I think it's way harder when you when you think about like a white person saying that they're Mexican because they look dark skinned. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a totally different. It, you know, it's hard to say. A hundred percent. I totally agree. And that is uh, directed at white women with aggressive tans. White women with BBLs and long dark hair and aggressive tans who are all of a sudden all Latin American women. Very suspicious. In the yep. Class. Well, I try to I try to remind people that there are white people in Mexico. There are black people in Mexico. Elon Musk is African. Okay, it's 2021. Saying that you're Latinx doesn't mean you're a person of color. Okay, doesn't mean you're a person of color. Just because you're from Africa doesn't mean you're a person of color. Like that is your nationality, not your heritage, not your ethnicity. Ethnicity is different from your nationality. Yeah, a hundred percent. So kind of actually on the same kind of train, I thought of that. What are some things that white members of the community can and should be doing to support our fellow uh, people of color as sex workers? Cash. <laughs> um, cash. Give money to sex workers of color, period. Tip them. Tip them better than you think you should. Um, because I guarantee you they're making 20% less than the white folks in that club. Um and so I think it's really important. And if they're not, they deserve it because reparations. Um, so just give as much as you can cold, hard cash talks. I think the other thing you can do is take the time to take implicit bias tests, find out if you have implicit bias, do what you can to counteract that. Um, read books, Google your fucking questions before you ask them to your friend who's a person of color. Um, you know, Rachel Cargill has an amazing 30 day course called do the work hashtag do the work. And it is a free 30-day anti-racism training. It is exceptional. Um, it's hard to go through. I would recommend taking more than 30 days to go through it because it can be really emotionally taxing. Um, but I think that that doing the work and, and using the resources which have already been provided can really help because, you know, black folks aren't a monolith. So asking your black friend um, doesn't necessarily give you the answers that speak for everyone. So the best thing you can do is just educate yourself broadly about the issues that face um, people of color and especially black, indigenous and trans people of color. Are there any tips that you would get for fellow sex workers to help or be a good advocate or ally uh, ally to uh, sex workers of color? Yeah, um, my number one thing would be when somebody is being shitty to a person of color and you see it when you hear the dog whistle instead of going to that person who's doing the harm, go to the person who's being harmed and comfort them instead. Put your energy towards the person who needs the help because I guarantee you that that person is a, the person who's doing harm is a brick wall that you're going to try to educate. You're going to try to yell at, don't put your energy into them, put your energy into the person of color, ask them if they're okay, start talking about something else, walk away from the situation with them. Um, giving them and showing them that they have a community and a fellowship with the people around them helps so much more than trying to educate an obtuse white 
angry person will ever do. I actually think that's a really good point. I, I think our, like, I, I'm, I'm such like a fighter. Like my natural instinct would be like, listen, you fucking goof. Like, but it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I see. Put my energy. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously this is something that I haven't had to deal with, but at that point, do you kind of start getting into the white savior complex as well as to like go against the, the wall? Right. Right. And so in, instead of going up against the wall and, and thinking that you can be, you're the person who's going to solve racism today. Like, no, you're not. But what is going to happen is that person of color is going to feel hurt. They're going to feel alone. They're going to feel othered. They're going to feel ostracized. So going up to them and not even saying, don't even have to empathize. Don't, don't even have to say, I understand. Don't have to say, oh my God, this must happen to you all the time. Don't say, I can't believe it because obviously it's happening in front of you. Literally change the subject. Ask them about their nails. Just move the conversation away from that angry person. And as much as you can, just focus on the well-being and cherishing that person of color in the moment and who they are. Um, because that feeling of loneliness can be a lot. And especially when somebody has to come in and do that white savior thing, you're often just left alone to stand there. And then you're expected to give like a thank you, all this other stuff. And it doesn't feel good. Um, so I think that definitely, um, it really helps to, to focus on, on caring for the victims and the survivors, um, is really important. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, for educating me on that. So we have a few listener questions here. Uh, we're running out of bedtime, so we grabbed the kind of top three we, we thought were really good. Um, the first one here is, I'm a person of color and would love to know if you have some suggestions on the best clubs to work at for people of color in the Oregon area. I don't have a good answer. That's unfortunate, though. It's really sad. Yeah. It's really sad. There's not a good answer to that. Um, I think that's a noteworthy answer though, that that's just such a call for change that there isn't a clear answer for you to give. So yeah. hopefully if we ever interview again and we have that question, you get to have a better answer for that. I hope so. Also my, my real goal in this is to be able to recommend all these clubs to people. I would love to be able to do that. You know, a lot of people think I'm trying to take these clubs down or something like that. I'm like, nah, I want to build your clientele. I want to build the amount of great dancers that you have options for. Um, I just want it to be better. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between tearing clubs down and just trying to hold them to some level of accountability and standard. Yeah, for sure. Next question here. I'm a dancer and also identify as non-binary. My club vibe is very Victoria's secret model. Think super feminine. I've known I was NB for a while now, and I'm starting to feel depleted not being able to be my authentic self in fear of ruining my bag. I love the club I'm at, the house mom, and my coworkers, so I don't really want to swap clubs, but I'm starting to feel more and more out of place. Do you have any advice for staying true to myself? I think it's especially when it comes to the dressing room. It's super okay to ask people to use your correct pronouns. It's super okay for you to ask the DJ to ask to use your correct pronouns. Um, if you think it's going to ruin your bag as far as you getting booked shifts at the club, document everything. Document what your schedule looked like before you started using your pronouns correctly and demanding that and watch how it changes um, and keep that in an email thread to yourself because it's illegal to discriminate based on gender identity. Um, and so 
if you needed to retaliate because of that, um, that would be a way to keep track of it. Um, but as far as being your authentic self goes, just know that this is a game of candy coated, you know, candy coated M&Ms. Uh, we are often somebody else on the inside. You are no less of that person because you are trying to put on a front for this club. I also think it's important to find clubs that you would feel comfortable saying those things to the DJ, saying those things to whoever clients, you know, like the name, like the boobs, like the age, like the ethnicity, I don't know, get your bag when it comes to clients. Um, I try not to argue with them over stupid shit. Cause all I care about is their money. I don't care what they know about me, what they think they know about me. Um, get your bag, but it can be, really hard depending on who your clientele is. Um, but I think that it can be really difficult. Um, I can't imagine being trans and being forced to like dead name yourself and work at, at a club for, for the gender that you don't identify as. Um, so I think it's a lot harder for people who are trans, um, not only just getting work, but, but being at work. Um, and, and the body dysmorphia that comes with that. But I think just, um, having a, having a loving and supportive community outside of your job is the most important thing that you can do. Um, making sure that you have a space afterwards to decompress, you know, people talk about aftercare in BDSM. I think that we beat ourselves up at work emotionally. We beat ourselves up physically. So it's really important to do that aftercare afterwards and find ways to ground yourself and get back into your body and recognize that, you know, who you are is no less whole because you, um, break it up so that people don't choke on it at work. Um, cause people will choke on a whole ass person, you know? So, um, just know that you can be you can be your whole self and not share that with people still, but please do, please do share it with people. I think that people need to get used to it, but it's a hard road to walk being a bad bitch. So (laughs) (laughs) true. And last one here for the past two months or so, I've been working at a strip club with predominantly black dancers. It's the only one near my place. And I think I'm one of about three white girls. I'm pretty shy. So for the most part, I come to work, make my money and go home. I've been doing pretty well, and I've been the top seller more often than not for the past few weeks. I listened to your interview on Why Won't You Date Me, and I realized what a difficult time people of color have being hired at the clubs. I don't want to step on any toes or take up space that isn't mine. Should I move clubs, or is there something I can be doing to be a better ally? You better take 10% of that money and give it to a black organization. How about that? (laughs) Donate some of your money that's a really good way to do it. Um, you are taking up space. You already know that because you're asking, um, you probably already know the answer and asking the nicest Brown person, you know, to give you an answer that you want is not the way to go about it. You already know the answer. So, um, I'm not going to give an answer that you, (laughs) that you like. I'm also not going to give an answer that's helpful to you you already know the answer to that. And I think that if you're comfortable staying at that club, you should stay at that club. I think that if you feel that you're taking up space, you probably are. I, I think that the, the answer is pay, pay reparations to people. Maybe it's not your coworkers because that can feel kind of underhanded. Um, but find a way to pay reparations and find a way to, um, I don't know, work less shifts even. Don't take the Friday, Saturday nights. How about that? Work a Tuesday afternoon. That's another really great way. 
take those shifts that um, would be traditionally deserved for dancers of color at a white club. Um, but yeah, I don't have a really good answer to that. Um, it doesn't surprise me that you're making a lot of money. Would it be appropriate to like, I'm big on double dances. I always try to get my girlfriends on dances and like, especially like me and Riley work a lot together. We have very much opposing looks. So the clients that like her might not seek out me. So she'll kind of like bring me along and vice versa. Uh, would it be appropriate if she kind of like use that privilege that she's seeing herself have in the club to bring in uh, a dancer to come with her? Not unless she's been asked because I have had people come up to my stage with their trick. Right. And they'll come sit at my stage and make their trick tip me. Here's the thing. I don't need your fucking help. Mm. Okay. I know how to do my job. And just because I'm making less money doesn't mean I don't know how to do my job. It means that Western beauty standards are in play. Mm. Um, that's me personally. I find it offensive when people do that. I think that it's a joke. I think that they think that I'm a joke and that I don't know how to do my job. That's how it feels to me when people do that to me. I don't like selling double dances. Um, I know that it can make a lot of money. I know that there are girls who don't feel this way. Again, black people aren't a monolith. My opinions are not necessarily speaking for everyone's experience. Um, but it's not my preference. Uh, and I think there's definitely nights where I would have taken money from a dancer. If, if a dancer had come to me and said, Hey, I noticed I made a lot more money then you hear 300 bucks. Would I have taken it? Absolutely. Would it have made me feel small? Absolutely. Um, so I think that the, the way to go would really um, be to ask, ask or be asked, ask in the dressing room beforehand, see if it's okay. Um, just say like, hey, I have a client coming in tonight. I know that they buy a lot of dances. I was wondering if you wanted to do some double dances with me tonight. You don't necessarily even have to say you're trying to make them some money. Um, just say that you, you know, you think they're really pretty. You think that they would be a perfect fit for you. Let's do this together. Um, and if they say no, that's okay. You know, it's, uh, I think an enthusiastic no is so much better than a forced yes. Um, so, so ask ahead of time and give, give somebody the heads up so that they don't feel like you're walking on their sales. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's, yeah, some really good advice. Definitely. Definitely. So before we let you go, we have three questions we ask all of our interviewees, and it's kind of a different tone than we've been having. It's a little more sexual and flirtatious. Uh, the first one is, what is one thing on your sexual bucket list that you haven't done yet, but you'd like to try? Um, hmm. Uh, pegging. I would love, and like a devil's threesome pegging. I would love to, to fuck two dudes at the same time. I think that that would be really great. Now that's on my bucket list. <laughs> that's really the only reason we ask. Is yeah. I was trying to think of things that I haven't done. I was like, damn, I've done it. You know, devil's threesome, done it. Like, orgy's done it. Been there, done that so many times. Like, there's just so much that wasn't on the list. And I was like, Peggy. And then I was like, not only, okay, if we're talking big pipe dreams. Let's talk about big pipe dreams. You oh, know, the puns. Yeah. <laughs> the second question here, what is one thing you've tried sexually that you probably wouldn't be interested in doing again? Fucking racist white dudes. Yes. I think that should all be on our not bucket list. For, I've ever for done any again. amount of money. Yeah. There's no amount of money. I yeah. love because obviously we're on a 
a Zoom call, the audience can't, uh, or the listeners can't see us, but I love watching people's faces as they like go through all these go experiences their lives, yeah. and like, oh, 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 and the grimaces they do. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one here, if you had the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? Donate to Haymarket Pole Collective. We're at 501c3. You can donate it at Haymarket, H-A-Y-M-A-R-K-E-T-P-O-L-E.com. Please donate and continue to give. We provide therapy services to black and indigenous um, sex workers. We also um, provide menstrual supplies, COVID testing and COVID response, um, as well as groceries and housing and rental relief. So please continue to give. Awesome. And we'll link that in the bio and on the Instagram as well. Yeah. Awesome. So before we let you go, Kat, where can people find you? Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Kat, C-A-T dot Hollis, H-O-L-L-I-S. I'm on Twitter, Kat Hollis underscore, I think. Um, And you can find me at PDX Stripper Strike. Awesome. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at 50plusatip or email at 50plusatip at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Kat. It was an absolute pleasure. You are a well of knowledge and we love everything you're doing for the communities and we appreciate it so much. Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful week and happy horn. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to check out Cat Hollis on Instagram and head over to haymarketpoll.com to find out how you can donate and help these amazing causes we talked about this episode.